Today is the second Sunday of October, which is the second Sunday of the 10th month. And as you saw there in just that real brief little clip, in honor of Luke 10.2, which if you were paying attention, it was briefly on there. Can someone quote Luke 10.2 for us this morning? What does Luke 10.2 say? Now, when those starts with the harvest is, the harvest is plentiful, but the reapers or the laborers or the workers are few. Therefore, what? Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send more laborers, more workers into the field. Are you aware of that reality? That the harvest is plentiful. That there are souls everywhere, not just across the ocean, everywhere that need to know Jesus. Are you aware that as the harvest is so plentiful, yet the workers are so few? There are so few laborers willing to go into the field You know, right from the get-go, on a morning like this, I'm not a huge fan of using guilt to make people do things. But I'm also not unaware of the fact that when we begin to really allow ourselves to think about the reality of the things I'm saying, that it gets pretty difficult pretty fast, doesn't it? Because it's pretty much impossible to sit and acknowledge that the harvest is plentiful and the labors are few and somehow not include yourself among the potential field of laborers, isn't it? There's a whole group of churches that we are part of and there's been a, uh, you saw in the clip there a little bit, there's been, there's been a focus and emphasis on Luke 10 too and recognizing that the harvest is so plentiful and the workers are so few. And I've mentioned this before. In fact, I, did, I talked about this last year, a year ago, on the second Sunday of October, that uh, there's a growing number of people, and my invitation to you is just the same as that, that you can be part of that growing number of people that, that are, are taking, uh, making a point to saying at 10.02 every day, and you can choose a.m. or p.m. or both if you'd like, but at 10.02 every day that they're going to set an alarm or they're going to somehow be reminded of Luke 10.2 and they're going to take that moment and, and whatever they're doing in some way, whether they stop and pray, whether they, somehow they're going to say, Lord, I recognize that the harvest is so great and the workers are so few and I want to ask you to send more out. And one of the primary reasons we want to do that is not just so that our prayers are doing exactly that, moving people into places where they want to go, but, but also to recognize it is pretty much impossible for you to sincerely ask God to send workers into the field and then and the next breath think to yourself or say to yourself or in some way take yourself out of that equation and say, but not me. Right? You cannot, I would tell you, you cannot authentically ask God to send workers into the field to take in his harvest and then say, but I'm not one of them. I chose this morning to take Focus on the fact that it's the 10-2 Sunday. It's the second Sunday of October. It's, it's a time to focus on this and say, you know what? I haven't touched base with the theme that I began with this year. If you remember, it's been a long time ago. I preached a whole series. I think this is number six now that's been scout, sort of scattered throughout mostly the first half of the year. And that is this theme of available because I think they go hand in hand, don't they? For you cannot say, Lord, send workers into the field and then not make yourself available to that. And I'm going to be very direct and upfront with you this morning that my primary objective is at this point of the year, we are now in October, at this point of the year, if I have made a great focus of this year, maybe it hasn't been as great as it should be, but if I have made some amount of focus this year on the fact that we are to be available to God for whatever purpose He has, and I'm not just talking about going overseas, although I am including that too. But I'm talking about whatever, whenever the Holy Spirit says, I want you to be available for this as he is pushing the gospel into places that, that they're not there currently or as he's working on someone's heart and he's saying, now is the time to sow those seeds or to harvest those seeds or to water those seeds or to whatever it may be. 
as I have made some emphasis on that, my question is very simple now. Has anything changed in your life this year with the focus of being available? Have you been more available, or has it just all been words that you've all said, yeah, that's a great sounding words, this is a rah-rah sermon, way to go, Merlin, and then you walked out and nothing changed in your life? Can you or can I look at instances this year where the Holy Spirit has prompted us to talk to someone or say something or to in some way bring Jesus into a conversation that he would have normally not had to be there, and yet you respond and said, yes, I'm available to you, God, to do exactly that? Or have our lives gone on just like they were a year ago? Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. We are not the only ones that have wrestled with being obedient to God. And I want to take some uh, pages out of Scripture this morning and show us some places where there were some others that struggled and Perhaps you may not like the um, analogy I'm going to draw because I'm going to lay us alongside of the most hated people in the Gospels and put us in their camp instead of putting us on Jesus' side of the camp, which we don't really like that because we always like to see ourselves as having understood Jesus perfectly and doing his will perfectly. My question remains, though, if you look at this year and have you, if you have not made yourself more available this year than you were last year, I would tell you you have not been obedient to Christ. Perhaps that's a bit blunt. Perhaps you don't like when I smash your toes like that. I don't either. And the question is just as fair to me as it is to you. But if I have chosen to not obey Christ in some way, that has meant I've said I'm not available in some way, then that means I actually don't put myself on Jesus' side in the Gospels. I put myself on the side of the people we call Pharisees and scribes because those are the people that say I'm following God and yet they're not doing it. Ouch, right? That's a big ouch. You see, in Matthew chapter 22, let me just read a couple of verses for you. Starting in verse 15, the Pharisees went and they plotted how to entangle Jesus with their words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, and they said, Teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Then they say in verse 17, Tell us then, what you think, here's the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now this question was, has, was meant to do a couple things on a couple different levels, right? We're going to try to teach the story as it comes out, but we're also going to try to see how, where we find ourselves in it. The, 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 the first part, the stated obvious part of that question is they were trying to trip him up, because that's what I just read in verse 15. They wanted to entangle him. They wanted to see how they could get him to make some mistake, or they could say, aha, now we can know that you're not really from God. Because up to that point, he seemed to be saying all the things that he really should be saying, because he was, and yet they didn't like it. Because that reveals the second part of what's really going on. They asked the question, not just to trip him up, but to also somehow excuse themselves from being obedient to the things that he was saying. Did you catch that? They asked not just to trip him up, but they also asked that question to excuse themselves for why they could be disobedient. If I want to sort of pull that into today's message, they were looking for why they would not have to be available to what God is saying. Not listening to what God is saying. For Jesus has been going around and teaching, right? In fact, they were amazed. Our quizzers know this because it's right in the first couple chapters of Mark. They were amazed at how he taught as one with authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees, right? So they posed this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're hoping they can catch him in some way. They're hoping they can give themselves a little bit of a, an excuse. They're hoping to find some wiggle room for why. You have all these great things to say, Jesus, but I actually have a reason to not do that. Does that sound familiar at all? Like we have this tendency to talk about how these are all these great things that God says about us, but I can tell you one reason why I don't actually have to do that. 
I'm unique or I'm different or I have some extenuating circumstance or I have some reason that it doesn't work. Well, to kind of catch us up there, we're going to, do, we're going to have to do this very fast because I, I don't have time to teach through all this. Um, it's just not possible. I want to flip back to chapter 21 because all this interchange, it all starts. Jesus enters triumphantly into Jerusalem. People are saying, hallelujah. People are saying, here comes the Messiah. He walks in the temple and he cleans the temple out. He drives out the animals. He drives out the people. He says, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is my father's house. It is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, all these things. He cleanses that out, and you have all this interchange happening. And in verse 23, this is where we're going to come from. In verse 23, when he comes back in the temple, there they are waiting for him, and here's their first question. And this is, tells us, and I'm going to go back to this because this tells us where this question about paying taxes to Caesar really comes born out of. And it's the question we ask all the time. Whether we know we do or not, we do. They ask this question to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? What is your authority, Jesus? Do you have the right to tell me or to tell us what to do? Where did you get that authority? Now, I tell you, we don't like to probably admit this. We probably don't like to say this out loud. But I tell you, we do this all the time in our lives. For any time that we are disobedient, we are telling Jesus, you don't have the authority to tell me that. Or I have a greater authority to disobey you or to say no thanks or to say I don't want to. That's really what we're talking about. It's a question of his authority. Now, we have at this point already been through, what, three messages from, from foundations. So we have begun to lay those, those blocks. And just from what we've been talking about already, does Jesus have authority over your life? What's the basis? Why can you, why should you be able to tell me or anyone that Jesus has authority in your life? You tell me. Have we been learning? Why does Jesus have authority? We all know the church answer, right? Because we're in church, you got to say yes, because that's what the Bible says. That's not the answer I'm looking for, because that doesn't actually convince anyone. What? Because he's God. Well, why does God have authority over us? That's another great question that comes right out of that. Why does God have authority over us? He created us. Statement number one. I, I refer to this in one of those messages. He created us. You belong to him because Jesus created you. By him and for him and through him were all things made that were made. Right? All things. I think you're part of that. And I'm part of that. Which means he created you. He automatically has authority. By the way, there's a second even greater reason why he has authority over you. Why is that? Somebody said it. He paid for us. He redeemed us because we, though we were his, we chose to walk away. We're not there yet in the, in the foundation series, but we're getting there. You all know this already. He, we chose to walk away, and he bought us back by the shedding of his own blood. He died so that you don't have to. He redeemed you. The second reason now why Jesus has authority over you. Listen. Pay careful attention to the tiny things that are happening in our heads and in our hearts. For when God speaks to us and wants to have us do something or move us into some place, and we begin to ask this kind of question, what authority do you have to tell me that? We've already answered it. We've said by our belief that we were created by God. He owns us. And we were redeemed by Jesus. We are doubly owned. He has all the authority in the world over us. So when he says things, we ought to be available to him, right? For when your master tells you to do something, the slave does not get to say, eh, no thanks, not today. Right? And yet, we find ourselves in that place all the time. Okay, so they asked him that question. By what authority? And Jesus takes the opportunity to do some teaching. Well, he asked him a little question. That we're not going to be able to hit everything in here. But he goes on and does some teaching. And in verses 28 through uh, 32 of Matthew chapter 21, he tells the parable of two sons. You guys know the story of the parable of two sons? Jesus said, hey, let, let, me, let me do some thinking about Help you think about what, what, what's really uh, the, uh, understanding authority. He says there was a man who had two sons. And he went to the first one. He said, hey, I want you to go out and work in my vineyard today. And the son said, no, I'm not going to do it. But later he turned around and went. And he worked. He went to his second son and he told him, hey, I want you to work in my vineyard today. And he said, okay, dad, I'll do that. But then he turned around and went and didn't do it. You got that? That's the scenario we painted. Two sons. One said he was not going to do it, but then he went and did it. The other said he would do it, but went away and didn't do it. And Jesus asked him this question. 
which of those two did the will of the Father? And you would all know the answer, right? Which one did the will of the Father? The first son or the second son? The first son. The one who said, I won't, but then actually did. What's Jesus trying to say with this? Let's, let's see if we can keep tracking even before we get into the text here. What, what's Jesus trying to say? What point is he trying to make? Who are the two sons? You know, every parable has, has representation of, of humans. So who are the two sons? Is it too hard to think on a Sunday morning for you? Who are the two sons? Who are the ones that said they're not going to obey, but then they did? That's maybe a little harder, actually, than the second one might be easier for us. We'll do the second one first, because I think you, who is the one that said we're going to obey then didn't? That's the guys he's talking to, right, the Pharisees. Okay, so if we want to pull this back into today, those are the people that tell God, yes, I'm going to follow you, and then don't obey him. All right? The people that tell God, yes, I'm, I'm in, I, 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 want, I want to follow you, I'm, I'm, I'm your follower, but then they don't obey him. So the other ones are the ones that say, no, I'm not, but then what happens? They end up doing it. They end up realizing the error of their way. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff behind the story, but Jesus is not telling the story for that reason. He's trying to get them to see that it's entirely possible to say one thing with your mouth, but the evidence of your life is something entirely different. Remember, we're going to talk about being available to God today. It's one thing to say in church, God, I'm available for your purposes. It's entirely different if your life doesn't match up to that and you actually don't make yourself available. Jesus, by the way, went on. He said, hey, let me tell you another parable. This time I'm going to talk about a man who had, a, uh, had some tenants. He had a man who had a vineyard. He planted it. He dug around it. He got it all prepared. And he, he leased it out to some tenants, some guys who were supposed to take care of this vineyard for him. And then he left and he went away. And when he went away and it was the harvest time, he thought, you know what? I'd sure like to have some of the harvest from that. This is my paraphrase. I'd like to have some harvest from that vineyard that I have. So I'm going to send my servants over there and I'm going to get some of the harvest. Now what happened? When the servants came into the vineyard, the tenants looked at the servants and they treated them scornfully. They beat them up. They sent them away. They killed them. They did all kinds of stuff to them, but they never sent any harvest back. And the, the owner of the vineyard kept sending more and more of his servants. And finally he said, I'm not getting anything out of them, so I'm going to send my son for surely they will honor my son. And so the, work, the, the, the owner of the vineyard, he, he sends his son to these tenants, and they say, aha, here comes the son. If we get rid of him, then the vineyard will be ours. And they kill him. Now, what's this, what story is Jesus telling them? What story is Jesus telling them? Who are the characters in this story? Who's the man who owns the vineyard? That's God. Who are the tenants who are supposed to take care of, or are in charge of the vineyard? In the story are the Jews, right? The scribes and the Pharisees. The Jews. Who are the servants that keep getting sent? Those are the prophets. And they keep getting sent to get fruit from the vineyard that God has carefully prepared from the people that God has chosen. And they keep getting mistreated shamefully. And finally, the owner says, aha, I'll send my son, which is Jesus. And instead of, now this hasn't happened yet, right? Instead of... Them saying, oh, it's the son. What do they do? They kill him. Now, this hasn't happened yet. And Jesus looks at them and he says, what is the man going to do with those tenants? What's the owner of the vineyard going to do with those tenants? And they get it. They know exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> he is going to destroy them. He's going to destroy them. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, because they perceive he's talking about them, and they get angry, will be taken away from you, and will be given to a people producing its fruits. Now, why do I, where's all this going? Now, in the context of the story, Jesus is very clearly teaching them, hey, you guys think you have it figured out. You guys think you're the ones serving God. You guys think you're God's people, and you think you have all this stuff in hand. I'm telling you, you are missing it. You're not producing any fruit. You're not actually having a relationship with the Father. You're not actually promoting God's will. You are doing your own thing, and you keep doing it, even though you've been repeatedly warned and repeatedly sent to, and you keep doing it, and you're going to take it to the end three where you're even going to kill the son, but here's what's really going to come down to. God is going to take away the kingdom from you, and give it to those who are willing to actually do 
Those are the Gentiles, the ones who initially said, no, I'm not going to follow, but then went and worked later. For us today, if we're going to pull this into today, again, I'm going to make this comparison. If we will be the people that tell God, yes, 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 I'm going to serve you, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to, I'm going to be for you, I'm going to be your disciple, I'm your follower, but we will not do it, God is going to or has or will come to us and say, I will take away my kingdom from you and I'll give it to those who are actually producing fruit. Those who are actually doing the will of the Father. I would suggest to you that for the Jewish people, when they looked at the Gentiles, they immediately had this like, this sneer, this like looking down upon, look at those guys that got it all messed up. Just look at them. They don't know how to do all the right things. They don't know how, they don't know how to eat right. They don't know how to live right. They don't know how to keep the Sabbath. They don't know how to do all this stuff. They don't know, how, they don't know any of that. Really, them? So what does that translate into us for us today? If we are the ones that supposedly are doing God's will, and when, if we're not willing to, now I'm just, if we're not willing to, and God gives it to those who we are looking at and saying, yeah, right, them? They don't know how to do it right. They don't live like us. They don't, they don't have good family. They don't have good, solid culture. You know what? If I can be so bold to say, we have received so much. Most of us are from the similar background, similar culture. We have received so much it is such a great advantage to us. We have such great potential for God to use us mightily. If we refuse to and do not make ourselves available to God and we choose to hole up and live our comfortable lives just taking care of our own stuff and raising nice families and nice houses and having everything that we want and, just, and saying no to what God wants to do through us, God is going to take those that we think don't fit the bill at all because they're the ones who said no, but now they're out there doing the work. They're the ones taking the gospel to places. I, I, I want to be, I, I want to communicate to you clearly. I don't know if I, if I can or if I am. I don't want that. I want to help God do what he wants to do, what he is doing in, among the nations and around us. I want to participate in the furthering of the gospel. It is the great privilege we have that we can be called ambassadors of God. That we can make the appeal on his behalf to other people to say, become right with God. Look at what he's done. What an amazingly beautiful Savior he is. I don't want God to look at me or to us and say, if you're not willing to, it'll go to someone else. He comes right down to it. I, wish, I want to point out a couple of these verses. It comes out of, out of he's a quotation from Psalms, but he says, In the process of this, and he's talking about himself, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he says this. I, mean, I put that on there so you could get that in your head. He, he draws this reference. The stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. But listen to what he says then just a couple of verses later. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I'd like you to point out the option we have, by the way, of not being broken in some way. Did you catch this? There is a stone that has been laid. It was rejected by many. It is rejected by many. He is rejected by many. But he is, in fact, the cornerstone. Those who fall on the stone are broken. But for those on whom the stone falls, they are crushed. I'd like you to point out the option that does not involve us being broken in some way. Here's my hint. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Let's get the foolish notion out of our heads that we will not ever have to be broken to be used by God. For when we fall on the stone, that's a voluntary action, we will be broken. But that is far better than when the stone falls on us and we are crushed. And Jesus goes on. He's not done yet. 
because he goes on and he tells another story. He says, let me tell you a story about a wedding feast. A man who had a wedding feast and he sent all the invitations and he sent them far and wide. He invited all those that should be invited. And then when the time was right and the, uh, the groom was ready and everything was ready to go, they had everything prepared perfectly. Then he said, hey, let's go out and let's call these in that all got the invitation. And it says, as he went out, all of them alike began to make excuses. We're still wrestling with authority, aren't we, in these stories? They all alike began to make excuses. Well, I got to take care of this first. Well, I got to do this now. Well, I got to take care. Of, I, gotta, I, I just got a new pair of oxen. I got to take care of these. I, I got all these excuses. And he goes on to say, this angered, this angered the one who had prepared the wedding feast. And he sent his servants out and he said, go into all the places, the highways and the byways and behind the hedges and find everybody and ask them to come and invite them and take the lowly and those that were kicked aside and rejected and those that don't have all these great excuses, come, have them bring, bring them in and they come. Now the story ends, I gotta, I gotta at least say this, the story ends because he still recognizes that even as they're there, they pay attention to this, even as they're there, he looks and he sees one who's not, doesn't have wedding clothes on, doesn't have wedding garments on. He says, how did he get in here? And he kicks them out. I don't know if you've ever wondered about that, but let me just sort of, sort of fill in the gaps here. This is what I call, this is what I talk about when I say we have misconstrued uh, the, the, the statement that says that God accepts us right where we're at. It's true. God does accept you right where you're at. But if you want to be in his kingdom, you will change. He will change you. You will allow yourself to be changed. Remember, the one who falls on the stone will be what? Broken. That is the picture of saying, yes, anyone can come to the wedding feast. Everyone's invited. But you still need the right clothes. You still need to be clothed with Jesus Christ. You still need to be pure before him. You need to be ready for that wedding. In other words, God accepts you where you're at, but he will never let you stay there. And at the end of that story, Jesus says this, many are called but few are chosen. And this is a statement we sometimes take some directions I don't think we should take them. What he's simply saying at the end of that is, if we substitute a few words, I think it'll make more sense. Many are invited. Look at the story he just told you. He sent out lots of invitations. Many made excuses. Then he sent out more invitations, brought them in. Even then, some were not fully prepared. Many are invited. That last word, few are chosen, is the word for election. And it stumbles us up sometimes. But I'd suggest to you that, that the, he's not saying they're not chosen on this end, by God's perspective, but many did not choose. They elected not to. They're the ones that made excuses or said they don't want to change their clothes. or whatever. They elected not to. They saw what was the imitation. They said, no thanks. I don't want to be part of this. Now, this took a little longer than I expected it to, but it's hard to talk about Scripture and hard to tell Jesus stories and hard to teach from it without, without being clear and, and, and do as good as I can. We go back to the question they asked him, because this is actually what's leading up to all this interchange. Is it okay, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Here's the question, and Jesus is going to answer it. Of course, you know the story if you've been reading before. You know that he uh, asked, he says, why are you putting me to test, by the way? Why are you being a hypocrite? Show me the coin for a tax. So they bring a coin, and, they, and he says, whose likeness, whose inscription's on here? And they say, Caesar's, and he says, here's the answer that you need to know. Therefore, whatever belongs to Caesar, sorry, I shouldn't paraphrase, I'll just read it. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. I submit to you, while our eye may first of all travel to the answer he gave to their direct question, can I pay taxes to Caesar? And he answers that, right? If it belongs to Caesar, you pay it to Caesar. I submit to you, that's actually not the greater point that Jesus is making. For the greater point lies in the second half of his answer. Yes, that's fine. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to the world and the world's government systems and, and the worldly ways. Give, give, give to, to them what, what you need to. However, the more important part is make sure you are giving to God what is his. Let's rewind. Who owns you? Who do you belong to? Who has authority over you? Who created you and redeemed you? When you give what is to God's, what is his, what does that include? You, me, us. 
I said this, I think it was last week in the message about Jesus. Jesus said, God, you prepared a body for me when he came into earth. I'm here to do your will. Jesus was available, right? He said, you gave me a body. You, you fashioned it for me. You put me there. I'm here to do what you want. I belong to you. That's what it means to be available. That's the answer Jesus gave to their excuse for disobedience. That's great. Give to, give to the world what, what's the world's. I, I, that's, that's fine. You need, that's fine. But make sure you give to God's what's God's. And I submit to you that's a far bigger category than we often admit to. This is the heart of what God is bringing us to. Let's not for a second think that we can sit here on a Sunday morning and say, God, I'm here for you. I'm available to you. And then not render to him what is his when we are not here, when we're away in the middle of our week. And God says, hey, could you go show kindness to this person? Could you say these words here? Hey, I'm calling you to go here. I'd like you to give a week of your life. I'd like you to give a month of your life. I'd like you to give a year of your life. And we all alike begin to make excuses. But I just got a new job. But I really want to pay for this house. But my kids are really little right now. That person, I don't think they really like me. It might be a little awkward. What if I don't know what to say? I really want to get this done right now. It's okay if you give to Caesar which Caesars. You should, in fact. But can we please make sure that we give to God's which is? I'm going to step aside just for a little bit. Um, you know, many times when I've done these messages on being available, I, uh, I, I made it my, my goal to give you examples so that you know it, it, it's being done. And, it, and I'm not saying these are the only examples. I know it's being done all over the place. And again, I'm not saying you have to go in a plane and go somewhere. For most of us, actually, it's right around us. But again, this morning, I was talking with uh, Autumn a couple weeks ago, and she's getting ready for a trip again. And uh, she just would have been, would, was, would be glad to tell you a little bit about the trip. And I'm sure ask for your prayers and just let you know what's happening. And I think it fits well in, some of the conversation we're having fits well in with the message that was going to come this morning. And so I uh, thought I'd give Autumn just a, about 10 minutes or so to come and share with us. She's got a couple slides she's going to use. But Autumn, come on up and give you a few, few minutes here. And then I'll come back up and finish the message. Good morning. So on Wednesday, I am going to Cuba. And um, I don't know a whole lot about Cuba. This is going to be a short trip. I can kind of share as I go about what I'm doing. But as I was studying about Cuba, there was a growing urgency um, as I learned more about this country. I've been wanting to share with you guys um, about Laos and the urgency there is in Laos. I think you guys know that I was detained in Laos earlier this year. And um, I keep thinking, man, at some point I really want to share and see if I can get more people involved. And now I'm looking at Cuba, and there's also urgency there. And I'm, I'm like, okay, now I really need to try and see if I can make this happen. Um, I think a lot of you know that Bible smuggling is a huge passion of mine. It's something that I love doing because I love the Word of God and because I love the church. And it just breaks my heart to see people who do not have a Bible of their own. I will be going to Cuba for about three days, and we will be delivering Bibles into the country, but we will also be delivering medical supplies and school supplies to help fill in this space in our suitcases. I mean, you can't just take a whole Bible that's just chock full of Bibles, or a suitcase that's chock full of Bibles and expect that to work. So we're taking other stuff as well. Now, what's, what's urgent about Cuba? Cuba has been communist for 54 years, but I learned that even though there is communism and even though the Persecution, according to the believers there, is worse than it has ever been before. There are two to 300 people who are coming to Christ every day. I was blown away when I found that. I was like, wow, praise the Lord. That is amazing. What's the urgency here? The urgency is that they don't have enough Bibles. And not only that, but um, although the, vision, the organization I'm working with, Vision Beyond Borders, is able to smuggle 
you know, a little bit at a time into the country of Cuba, their constitution is currently being revised. And they expect that in about a year from now, that constitution, new constitution will be finished. It will be harder for the church. Things will become tighter. And what Vision Beyond Borders is able to do now, even though it is illegal, even though it is kind of through a back door, might not be possible at all anymore. So they're working as hard as possible right now, taking in groups twice a month, carrying Bibles in as many as they can. In the last five years, Vision Beyond Borders has delivered 70,000 Bibles. And that is a huge number when you're taking maybe 10 or 12 per suitcase. As I think about Bible smuggling, I, there's an example, and I maybe have shared it here before, that I like to think of how this whole thing works. Over here, we have, we have all the Bibles we need. I mean, how many of us have one, two, three, maybe five copies of the Word? And I can't give you specific numbers. I would like to, but because of churches in these closed countries being underground, it's really hard to give you numbers and say, there's this many believers and this many Bibles per believer, or how that works. It's very hard for me to tell you, but there's very few. So I feel like we have a sea of resources over here, and they have maybe a pond. And my, my goal and my desire is to carry as much as possible, but all I can carry at a time, because this is illegal, is about a tablespoon worth. And I'm excited to carry that tablespoon. I'm thrilled that I get to take that tablespoon and dump it in the pond, but it's not very much. Um, not only that, but I can only go so often. It's really not wise for the same person to go through the same border over and over again. Obviously, that would not work very well. So we need a variety of people. Merlin was talking about being available, and this is my appeal to you. I know you guys have all prayed for me while I was gone, and I know there have been people who financially supported me, but please consider being available. We need more people to carry that tablespoon. We need more people who are willing to do this for Cuba and also for Laos. Um, because I've been there and spent time there, Laos is also very much on my heart. Just to give you a picture of what Laos is like right now as far as persecution levels go, I was looking this up, and according to Open Doors, who really keeps track of this kind of statistics, Laos is the 17th country on the list out of 50. And they get 71 points out of 100 for um, persecution. So they're, they're up there for sure. Um, when people think about Bible smuggling, I think they're like, you know, that's for the select few, or that's for the young, or that's for maybe the single, or the people who do not have any attachments in life, because it's dangerous, or it's scary, or because it's a long way. But um, I have met 70-year-old people doing this. I've worked with couples doing this. Um, I've On my last team, I had a 17-year-old along. So this is not just... Um, for people like me, it's really, I, I think there's a huge range, a huge spectrum of people that can get involved. Something else that's a huge benefit for um, the idea of getting involved in this kind of thing is that short term is better. There are not very many mission opportunities where short term is better. Short term is oftentimes a detriment to the mission field, but this short term is exactly what's needed. If you did long term, I mean, you'd get caught way too much. Um, there's other things. I, was, I was, wrote down several different things. See if I can remember. Um, this is some, not something that natives can do better. You know, with Serve India, that's something that natives can do better. So we're empowering the pastors to do their job. With this, this is something where the natives are helpless. The people who live in these countries cannot help themselves unless they're printing underground, which some are doing. This is something where our American passport and our foreignness is a benefit to what we are doing. It is a blessing for what we are doing. So um, then another thing people, another excuse people use is that it's, well, it's scary. Uh, I don't know if I want to take the risk. It's illegal. I don't know if I want to go against the government. Um, what are those people doing every day by being Christians? They're... They're living an everyday illegal life by choosing to submit to God and not fear man. 
And who am I to not be willing to step out for a short period of time, put myself at risk in order to help them? I mean, their, their whole lives are a risk. So t- for me, the idea of risk is a really, really poor excuse. Because look at who we're serving. Oftentimes, uh, something that inspires me is to picture the people and I don't get to see the people I'm giving the Bibles to. That doesn't happen very often. But to picture them, and they, if they could talk to us, if they could speak to me, I'm sure they would be begging me, please bring as much as you can. Please, we're willing to suffer. We're willing to be put in prison for the word of God. Please, do everything you can to bring as many Bibles as we can. Our churches need Bibles. New believers, we're leading people to Christ every day, and we don't have anything to give them. We don't have the word of God to give them. We have to train them from the verses that we remember. Please, do what you can. So that oftentimes reminds me um, of, of the need and helps me to be willing to go. Like, how can I stay home? These people need the word of God. So I'm going to quick share a... Vision Beyond Borders trip schedule for 2020, just to give you some handles on this. If you guys, if anybody is interested, I would love to give you information. I would love to get you connected. I would love to come along with you if I can. (laughs) I've had a lot of people who come up to me and are like, oh, I'd love to do that sometime. But really, when it comes down to it, people aren't stepping up. There's, There's a whole rundown. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different dates. That's another thing about this is uh, if it doesn't work for you to go in January, think about February. Hey, if February doesn't work, why not look at March? I mean, there's a ton of different dates for this, so it's not, it's not hard as far as that goes. Um, I can share this schedule with anybody that's interested in looking at it. And then I want to share a picture with you of a very special man that I got to meet while I was in Laos. He spent 14 years in prison. Most of it was in solitary confinement. He was only taken out of solitary confinement for interrogations or for work. Um, He shared his story with us. And there's also a video that um, Voice of the Martyrs has made about him. I looked it up yesterday to remind myself of the details of his story. And here's something really precious that he said about the word of God. I don't know if you guys can see to read this or not. But he said... I can bear the torture, the starvation, but I desperately need my Bible. This is while he was in prison. Every day I pray over and over for God to give me a Bible. I will risk everything to have a Bible. In fact, while he was out working to collect firewood for the prison, this this is his daily job, he had two days where he was trusted to leave and go to the woods and get firewood. He worked, I mean... Crazy hard the first day to collect two days' worth of firewood. And then the second day, he ran home and got a Bible and brought it back with him. So he had a Bible in prison. They found it. They ripped it apart, got angry at him, and he did it again. I'm not sure how many times he did it, but he was just desperate to have the Word of God. So I would just just encourage you, please consider this. Seriously consider this and ask God. Could this be something that I can become involved in? Is this a way that I can be made available? Thank you. Thank you, Autumn. I'm going to close out this morning with uh, some things that I think I've had up here before and uh, uh, just in an effort to be maybe as uh, gut-wrenchingly honest and blunt and uh, maybe you think I've already been too much of that this morning. But... uh, to just, uh, I, I think just to be honest, uh, the appeal this morning has been the whole time to make yourself available to God and to recognize that there are hindrances to that. There's things that keep us from saying yes to God. This is not an exhaustive list. Autumn just mentioned one of these. I think there's always a healthy fear, fear of people, fear of what will happen, fear of the unknown, fear of failure, all kinds of fears. I submit to you that the more that we, that you and I, that we press into the Father and get to know who he is, the less we fear. For the greater that he becomes.
If you are struggling this morning because the Holy Spirit, which he is so good at doing this, is able to pull on your heartstrings in some area, in some arena, we gave you one example, but there's hundreds more that could be true. But you sense fear holding you back, I would suggest you spend lots and lots of time with your father. Many times we have to recognize that we are, in fact, unprepared. I don't mean to say that we don't have the tools or the capabilities. I mean to say that we have not chosen to make it a priority of our lives to invest in the things of the kingdom. Meaning to know the word, to know how to pray, to know how to rely on God, to know how to hear his spirit, to be, know that when his spirit moves that we can sense and we can be obedient and we can respond to those things. We have chosen to spend our time in the things of the world, which makes us woefully unprepared to be used by God. If you are being tugged this morning and yet you are sensing that you know that you are woefully unprepared for the task that he might be calling you to, I would submit that you spend a lot of time with the Father in the Word and you begin to know who he is and what his heart's cry is, what the gospel truly is, and how to communicate that. I think a major, major one for us, let's be very honest, is that we have too many other obligations. We have too many other things that take priority in our lives. We have too many other, I'm going to use the word bondages, and they may not look like that at face value. They may not be that at all at face value. They're only a bondage when they keep us from being obedient to God. Too many what we might even have called good things, but we're too tied down. I would submit to you that if you this morning are feeling a tug in your heart and yet you realize that this is keeping you from saying yes to God, that you work on simplifying your life. Get rid of things. Sell things. Get out of debt as much as you can. Can I just say, it will be the most monstrous shame in the world for you to realize someday that there are souls that could be in heaven that weren't all because you wanted to keep some things at your house that you thought were precious. Let's be honest, sometimes the greatest hindrance to us being available to God is simply we don't care. I like my nice, comfortable life. Thank you. My friends, that will be an even greater shame than what I just said. When you have the opportunity someday to see the Lord Jesus Christ and the great lengths he went to, to show his love to you, for you to recognize that I just didn't care about other people. It didn't mean enough to me. If you sense your heart being tugged this morning and you recognize there's an apathy there that you would rather just do your own life and not have to hear these uncomfortable things anymore, I would really suggest you spend a lot of time with your father and get to know his heart. Why should you and I think that God loved us enough to send his son for us? But he doesn't care that much about anybody else. God, thank you so much for your word this morning. It's almost like we come to a place where I, there's, there's no more words to say. There's just a choice.
I care? Am I free? Am I prepared? Do I trust you? Will I make myself available to you for any and everything that you ask of me? Whether that be in my own house, in my neighborhood, with my extended family, in the workplace, in the next state, in the next country, across the ocean. For five minutes, or 30 minutes, or five hours, or two weeks, or two years, or till you tell me to take me home. There's so many words that Jesus spoke to the scribes and the Pharisees and God, we don't want to be in the same place as them. We do everything we can to look down at their choices and the way they responded to Jesus and the way they were disobedient to you even though they said they were following you. We don't want to be in their side of things and yet this morning it becomes obvious that when we are willing to certainly to just sit down and to let your Holy Spirit proof our lives, we recognize that for far too many of us, far too often, we belong much closer to the Pharisees and scribes than we do to Jesus. Oh God, forgive us. Forgive us. We are so sorry that the gospel has not taken precedence in our lives. That the name of Jesus has not been the sweetest name that we know. The greatest thing we could ever say or share with anyone. The most life-giving thing we have ever had to offer. Not only that he brings us the greatest amount of joy, that, that we get the greatest amount of joy from being willing to share, being able to share him with others. Oh God, forgive us. We have this time of prayer, Father, and I just am reminded, I want to pray for Autumn. I, I know that uh, you know the plans that you have prepared for them. You know the, the, the exact, you know every detail of that trip already, but we ask that you would make straight paths for them. We, we ask that you would provide that the word would get into the hands that would desperately need it, that it would be a blessing, that it would be the, the seed that is, that, that's planted, or it would be even the water that grows the seeds that are already planted about the gospel, that it would bring forth fruit. That it would multiply the harvest. Thank you that you are sending workers into your field. Thank you, Father. God, I give you praise and glory. But I ask for your help in my own life. That I might be available to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a video to close this morning as well. It's another 40-second one, so it won't take long. I'm going to start it. And when the video is done, you can be dismissed. Go in peace today.